Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I am delighted to be joined by author and just someone who sets Twitter streets ablaze. <laughs> Jamil F. Khan, who is the author of a forthcoming book that we're going to be speaking a lot more about, uh, Khamer. But before we do that, Jamil, wow. Welcome to SMWX. Thank you. It's been a while. I just thought let's let's set Twitter streets alight and just <laughs> so basically every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're coming every day. We shoot every day and just. <laughs> I was saying like I think the Twitter algorithm is just like okay, Jamil F Khan tweet. Yes, this goes to front of queue. This is the content we signed up for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to know that happens. I, I always wonder where all the engagement comes from. Now I know. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, wow. Like, so I think. I discovered you, like so many other people, on Twitter streets mm -hmm. where you were just spitting fire mm -hmm. um, and just, I think I discovered you in the context of a Zilla tweet. Mm -hmm. um, more on that later. <laughs> <laughs> but um, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think a lot of people on Twitter know who you are, where mm -hmm. you come from. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Um, you know, what's the context out of which these fire tweets come from? So I started my um i did i decided to do a, a masters in critical diversity studies in 2016 and that was basically after a five-year hiatus from academia because mm. i had um i initially had aspirations to become a clinical psychologist okay and when i realized what it was actually about because i i went straight from high school into university mm. And when I realized what it was actually about when I got to my honors, I was like, hmm, this is not what I want to do with my life. <laughs> Can't. Heart is too soft. Mm. So, and then I then decided rather to do one year of master's um, mm. in psychology, research psychology, because it seemed easier. Mm. And when I, when I got into it, I was like, my heart is not in this. And then I decided, nah, stop this actually go and figure out what it is that you want to do. Because in reality, I, haven't, I hadn't really lived. I just went from school into another school, and that was my world. Mm, mm. And when I actually went out into the world and lived, I was like, what a mess. <laughs> wow, what a mess. And then I actually realized, oh, these are the things that I care about. Mm. This, is what I would, this is what I would do even if I weren't being paid. Mm. So... So let me just do that. Mm, mm. Um, and then I did, I did the masters. And I always had aspirations of being a writer. And I knew that the kinds of things I want to write about would be this, this passion for social justice. Mm. But not necessarily just writing about having a passion for social justice, but unpacking the issues that one deals with when you talk social justice. Mm. Um, but I decided to go and get the masters because I wanted to be, I wanted to have the credentials. I could have done it mm -hmm. anyway, but I felt it would be, it would just be easier for me to do that and get the credentials behind me because I know that the kind of testimonial injustice that I would come up against mm -hmm. with being uh, colored and being queer and a whole host of other you know, uh, constellations of marginalization, mm. I would have to work really hard to constantly deal with the pushback and the who are you to say this mm. and the, mm. you know, that type mm. of thing. So I said, I actually enjoy doing it. 
this will also help me in my journey. So let me do that. Mm. And then I just, I don't know. It's funny. I think everybody has that Twitter journey whereby you download Twitter in like 2010 and then you tweet one or two things and you're yeah. like, this is trash. I hate this. Yeah. <laughs> and then 10 years later, you're like, oh, actually, Twitter is cool. <laughs> how, how did your Twitter journey start? And, and what was the moment when you realized like, hmm, this can be an interesting medium for me to share my ability to write in very short, punchy ways with a broader audience? And how did it start picking up? Well, the funny thing is when I started using Twitter again, because um, it had just been this dormant account. Um, I need to go back and see these archived tweets from like <laughs> 2012. Yeah, it was just so ridiculous, actually. But I do remember actually tweeting Ellen Ziller about something and she didn't even respond, so mm. go figure. Are you going to follow the new, the new Zilla account? We're coming back, don't she will let me in. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so it had been dormant for a while and then I sort of, sort of took an interest in it again. Mm. And I had like 200 followers hmm. when, <laughs> when I started, those which was like tough times. <laughs> 200 followers for like the, all those years. <laughs> and then, I don't, you know, now that I think about it, because it's also such, a, such an always on thing, mm. it feels as if I've never, I've, there hasn't been a time when I wasn't tweeting. Mm. So now to try and think back to like how it started, I, I don't know, but I actually think because I was very much still in that journey of doing the masters. Mm. Um, and, and at that point, the field was very new to me. So I was, mm. not that I'm not excited now, but it was a different kind of newbie excitement mm. about mm. the things I was learning. So I felt, I feel like I just started tweeting as, a, as, a, as an outlet for all these thoughts. Because, you know, you, you engage literature and material and you then, you know, sort of... Um, fuse that with your, what you observe around you and then you just have all these ideas and these thoughts and you get mm. so excited and then instead of like because I'm obviously already writing it down because I'm doing a master's yeah. but then I was like but I want other people to hear this thing too that I'm thinking mm. and mm. then I decided that yeah Twitter might be it and people seem to cotton on and like it they do they do if you're not following Jamil's account I don't know where you've been and what rock you've been under but start start following we'll drop it drop it below so you know, you've built this quite formidable platform now on social media. You're, you know, going on radio stations and, you know, coming in and addressing our little platform over here as well. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, and, and this has led to a book which mm -hmm. is going to be published in April this year. Yes. So um, I really want to whet people's appetites for this book. It's called Khamer, The Making of a Vater Slums. Mm -hmm. And you spoke a little bit about the constellation of identities, you know, that, that bring you together. Yeah. Tell us um, a little bit about the journey to writing this book and, and what its central themes are. So, yeah, the book has been a, a, a while in the making. Mm. Um, <laughs> the makings. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, I mean... Or let me rather say, not necessarily this book, but a book. Mm. And how it came to be was obviously um, a big, a big uh, part in my in my early days of Twitter interaction was sort mm. of unpacking this idea of coloredness, yeah. Yeah. Um, which I still do, but I feel like I've I've established a sort of standard ideological basis for where I stand on that. Mm. So. Mm. Um, so I was approached by my publisher, 
Shout out to Jakana. Yeah, and Nadia in particular. Shout out to Nadia. And so, so the the initial meeting was about sort of about that that sort of um, academic slash uh, crossover to mm. late um, unpacking of the idea. And of course, also everybody knows that I'm doing this PhD. So, um, so I said to her, well. That that's a possibility, but remember the PhD is still very much in the early stages, so that can't be a now thing. And then I presented this other idea to her, which obviously deals with the same issues in a different way, and that is my personal biography. Um, and what I, what it does is it basically lays out the intersections between coloredness and the layers to that. <coughs> Islam queerness, and the precarity of middle-classness. And without throwing the book out onto the table... I mean, you can. You know, <laughs> this audience won't tell anyone. <laughs> um, but it's... So it's basically... So, okay, so let's start at the title, right? Mm -hmm. So Hamar is the Arabic word for intoxicants or... Um, alcohol, mm -hmm. which is, is, is generous, so it's sort of used interchangeably. The, um, the reason behind that is because I, I was raised as a Muslim person, and I actually like to use the terminology now that I'm of Muslim descent. Hmm. Um, but I was, I was, for all intents and purposes, raised as a Muslim person with a father, uh, well, parents initially, but then for the most part, a father who was hmm. an alcoholic. Hmm. And many people will know that that is a very big taboo mm. in Islam, mm. not just in South Africa, but, but generally. Sure. And so with that comes a lifelong legacy of shame, mm. you know, mm. because you're always not enough. Mm. You're always not doing it right kind of thing. <laughs> and... Preach. Yeah, and... and Honestly, it's been a long, long journey of me actually having to, to teach myself not to internalize the shame of someone else's actions mm. because of the way in which an entire religious community sets itself up to be gods on earth. Mm. And so that's, so that's one of the central themes. Coming then to the idea of the Vatir slums, mm. which... And in the book I do, I describe, I explain with, so where the term, terminology comes from and particularly the latter part of the term, which is slums, mm. which I say is a slur out of the spell book of Christ, white Christianity to describe Muslims, but it comes from the word Islam. Mm. Um, and so the idea of the Vata slums is the, the diluted Muslim mm. in mm. both practice and in faith. As in water. Yes, yeah. watered down. Yeah. Um, and that term is also a, an extremely violent term that has sort of morphed over time to be used in different contexts. Mm. But it's, there's a lot of, it's, it's really bound up with that idea of shame and religious superiority and sort of that, you know, respectability mm. and, 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 um, and power, but, you know, social power that often in communities get, get wielded over people who don't conform. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's sort of a explication of, of the terminology. But 
I think so, it's it's such a <clears throat> just to come in there such a, a brave thing to do in the context of that community. Yeah. Um, I have an opposite journey to yours because I came from outside yes. Islam into Islam and have seen the way that that sort of violent. I made a space for you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> in the book? No, in oh, Islam. Okay. Oh. I live. <laughs> I was like, you. now I'm scared. <laughs> no, don't worry. Um, <clears throat> and that economy of shame and, and how it plays out, mm. I've been able to see from the opposite perspective. Yes. Um, and I was literally just, just before this interview in a mosque mm. and just experiencing that in the, in the kind of talk, the, the Friday talk that happens and just like, this mountain of shame just like thrown at various different people who aren't seem to conform to this ideal type. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and so from within that community, there's likely to be a lot of pushback. And I don't think people who read this book outside that context will understand how difficult that can be. Yeah. Um, take us through th the thinking behind coming to the point of being ready to offer this critique to a community that needs it, yeah. but will not necessarily take kindly to it? So, in some ways, you know, for me, queerness has been both like a, a struggle, but mm. also a blessing in mm. some ways because of, of who I am and the, and the not just personal, but also sort of intellectual journey that I've undertaken. Mm. In that, I, I understand myself to be a critical scholar and within that I can never I can never create allegiances with any form of, of system unless it's geared towards ultimate justice and in at the moment there is no such so so for me as much as what I've also I've experienced a lot of violence as a queer person from within my not only um, religious community, but just community in the sense of where I grew up kind of thing. Sure. Um, that violence or the experience of that violence and, 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 and sort of in some ways then coming to a place where you take a stand and go, you know what, <laughs> what is the point of towing a line mm. that is constantly geared to, to hold me in a particular place? Sure. So then I realized, you know what? It kind of actually almost doesn't matter whether I toe the line or not because I'm, I'm, I'm automatically on the outside because of my sexuality. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it gave me the, you know, uh, the consciousness to go, I'm on the outside anyway. Mm -hmm. So I might as well just say what I want to say. Um, and, and also, I mean, I, I, I have made a point of saying that and I have written the book in a way that as much as what is very um, brutal in its critique, I also, I also have the, 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 the presence of mind to say, I understand how these things come to be. Mm. I understand why people end up thinking the way they do. I can't excuse it. I can't say it's okay to be violent. It's okay to exclude people. It's okay to make people feel ashamed. Mm. But I also understand the systems that have impacted on you to make you that way. Yeah. And maybe if I, if I point it out to you, you might find it worth your while to actually interrogate how that system replicates itself within you. Mm, absolutely. 
Um, so yeah, so I mean, for me, being a queer person, stepping out of the door every day and just mm. going about my business is bravery. Mm. So this for me is it's sort of like just another, another iteration of that. Mm. Mm. Um, and I will say, it's a very unfortunate society that we live in that just living your life needs to be tantamount to bravery. Mm. I shouldn't mm. have to just, I shouldn't have to be brave for no reason. Yeah. But, but that's how it is. So yeah, to answer your question, I just, I see it as another iteration of what I have to do. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's something important about just that perspective that you bring writing from the inside, mm. in and also out yeah. to society. I think a lot of critiques of Islam fall victim to a white supremacist lens, yeah. whereas, and, and then people within Islam then defend it by saying, hey, but no, but this is all wrong, this yeah. is racist, where it's like, actually, we have some serious things to talk about, and let me tell you what it's like from the inside, or at least through my experience of that. Um, Another aspect of what you talk about is this precarity of middle classness. Can you take us a little bit into that? Because I think that's absolutely fascinating. We have a lot of binaries in the way we talk about politics in South Africa. We talk about the poor. Yeah. We talk about inequality. But we often erase that layer, which is so relevant to so many people, which is yeah. this middle, as it were. Take us through that. Yeah, so, so I was raised as... Oh, I was raised to believe that I were, we were middle-class people. In a, in a colored community in Cape Town, in the north, northern suburbs of Cape Town, um, and we, we, we had... I, w I was raised comfortably. We had stuff, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, that... It, and I also talk about how that type of, that type of thing has a lot of currency amongst... Um, um, amongst mar in marginalized communities, mm. this the ability to to have things that people can see physically, mm. you know. Um, so for all intents and purposes, I had a, a a good life growing up. But what we didn't know was that that was <laughs> it. It was it was a consequence of a system that placed colored people, that very same economic um, consequence of placing colored people as a buffer between white and black people mm. um, and sort of making them feel and believe that they are that much better but not quite good enough mm. kind of thing. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, so for, for, for a large um, part of, well, large part of, not that large, but for part of my life, we were comfortable. We, from my perspective as a child, we seemed wealthy, mm. and eventually, at my with my my father's work, um, things went south there, and sort of all that stuff fell away, mm. um, because of the and I I point this out too, because of the um, the currency that proximity to whiteness gives us, and I'm talking about particularly in my family, mm. and then specifically my father, he then managed to sort of regain his footing a little bit mm. until eventually 
things really fell apart. Okay. Um, but the point that, 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 that I come to with this idea of the, the precarity of middle classness is the fact that it's actually an illusion for many, um, for many black people in general mm. that middle classness is not worth much if one wrong move will send you tumbling right back to the bottom again. Mm. Um, it's also sort of this idea of um, constantly having to start over. So you, you, you try your hand at something and you make it to a particular point and then something happens and then you're back to the beginning. Mm. So it's the cycle. That's what precarious middle-classness looks like for black people in general. The cycle of trying again and again and again and again and again until you die, you know? Always trying to achieve this, what is, what is, that what is supposedly promised um, at the end, which is the next step out of middle-classness, but the, the, the system doesn't allow that, mm. you know? And, I mean, I'm also, I'm also anti-capitalist, in many ways. So there's a whole thing of, you know, um, entrepreneurial whatever and, you know, making money and getting rich. And that's also now out of my, you know, framework of aspiration. But in a capitalist system, one still has to survive, mm. you know. And I feel like that keeping, keeping that, that precarious middle class on a loop like that allows basically keeps people busy so that they don't focus their attention on the elite that actually enable the conditions for that to happen and what happens for people lower down in the hierarchy. Mm. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that elite. Um, you know, as, as you talk, I think of President Ramaphosa, for example, mm -hmm. right, who is a billionaire on one hand or has uh, fabulous amounts of money, but is also entrenched in an ANC power structure which wields political power. Mm. Um, and has just, you know, as we filmed this, had his Sona speech and replied to the Sona speech. How do you think the, the current South African political establishment is addressing you know, the, the multiple crises that we have in our country. And do you think the president's agenda takes us anywhere near addressing those? Yeah. Wow, Sizwe. <laughs> um, I told you it's going to be lit for Twitter streets. <laughs> um, wow, I don't, I don't think... Don't worry, we're coming to other parties. <laughs> uh, I've seen your tweets. <laughs> you know, we made it. I actually, I, I made a statement recently mm. that said um, we are doing just enough to make it seem like we're busy at work, but the screen is, the computer is asleep. <laughs> so, um, so really that's, that's, I think that's for me an accurate description of, uh, description of what I see the ANC doing as a political entity and also as a leading political entity is, I think, we, again, we've been on this loop of, but we build, we, um, we built another 20 kilometers of streets somewhere. Mm. So we're doing something kind of thing. At this point, you know, first of all, we need to, we need to ask the question, where were we supposed to be at the, by now? Mm. Absolutely. And should that not be 
the frame of reference for how we evaluate how we are doing. Because I feel like our, our leadership operates on, well, a f there are a few um, mechanisms that they use to, 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 in some way, subdue people's critique. The one, the very obvious one, is guilt. Mm. We liberated you. Without us, this would not have been possible. First of all, it's a fallacy. Um, but I think it's just, it's so, it's sad. It's really, really sad that people in that position feel the need to employ such a primitive um, emotion, if you will, to control people. Um, so that, I mean, that's one, one thing. And then there's the other, the, the opposite of that, which is this inflated sense of self, you know, um, always exaggerating the, 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 the work that has been done, the contributions, the outcomes of it. Mm. And yeah, for the, for, and the rest of it is all just sweeping things under the carpet. So I used to, I used to be, and it actually breaks my heart to say that I can't do that anymore in good conscience, but I used to be so protective of the ANC mm. and the contribution. I think we've all been in that place yeah. where like, you finally realize, it's very similar to the place you were when you're talking about your own personal story. At some yeah. point you have to finally realize that it's okay to launch the full critique. Yeah, yeah. And you know why? It's because, it's because of the thing that you just mentioned about you are afraid to critique your own because of the ways in which um, sort of when we talk when we talk about the ANC, mm. the ways in which white supremacy and whiteness will will mobilize to be like, yeah, exactly, you see, mm. you people. Mm. You pe and then you feel like you're the one that opened the door for that yeah. kind of thing. Like on that, I remember like releasing this very critical song of President Zuma mm. when I had reached my tipping point. Mm. And this right-wing social media network came out of nowhere and started sharing it everywhere. Like these very, very like crazy accounts. And I was like, no, 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 this is not <laughs> the point. Enough. Yeah, exactly. You know, and yeah, so, so it's funny how these criticisms can get taken out of context. But then that doesn't mean you can't criticize. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. So, I mean, so then it just maybe creates double work. Mm. So you'd be like, yes, I am saying this, but also you shush. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Can that be the title of this episode? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so, so it's, it's, really been, it's really been heartbreaking mm -hmm. to have to get to that point whereby you're like, I can't defend this any longer. Um, but the unfor unfortunate but um, realistic way in which um, politi party politics in South Africa is extremely racialized, right? Um, and I do think in some ways the EFF has sort of disrupted that convention, mm. right? Because it's, it's always been the ANC is a black party for black people and DA is a white party for white people. Mm. Um, and whoever, whoever falls outside of that demographic supporting that party happen to be anomalies. Mm. Mm. Um, but... It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that one has to then do that kind of fending off of, I'm, I'm, 
I'm critiquing, but then I also have to guard against unfair and sort of uh, prejudiced and, 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 and bigoted critique that has nothing to do with governance. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can I ask you what yeah. your view on, let's go to the DA and the EFF. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of thinkers from the academic tradition, critical scholars, you know, dismiss formal politics and often with good reason. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that leaves this, this vacuum in our discourse where like just a bunch of very single-minded journalists push one narrative, yeah. you know? So I do think it is important to critique from a different perspective, yeah. the, the spectrum. Um, you've, you've, you've dealt with the ANC devastatingly. <laughs> um, but then as you say, like on the spectrum, there, there are various different parties, but the DA and the EFF seem to be sort of dominating the opposition landscape. Yeah. <laughs> recent events in Parliament. <laughs> you know, I make this point about religion, and I think that the, the, the religion and politics are very analogous, mm. um, is that I don't believe that one can, one can separate the, 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 the entity as a whole from its followers and its leaders, right? So often the, the, the argument gets made, well, this is not what... Christianity is, but the people following it do, no, dude, seriously. If I walk into a church and I want to join the church and I get told I can't because I'm gay, then that's what the religion is. Those are the people who are charged with actually enacting it. Sure. Right? So, so a, political parties often default to, yeah, but our manifesto, but our values, mm. but our constitution, mm. but, mm. But, but how are you enacting that? Right? Are you yourself um, subject to the rules that you that you've put out in those documents? Mm. You know. So with with the DA, I mean, the DA for me has has been basically on this. And the Ellen Zilla came out and she said her biggest mistake was <laughs> what she means by that is something, or what she thinks she means by that is something different to what it actually is. But that whole thing was about window dressing for the purposes of, of, um, of enticing black voters as if people are... And I'm, I'm sad to say it has worked to an extent, but, but as if people are not you know, awake to what is, what is going on. Um, the, the way in which whiteness and white supremacy, which doesn't get identified through a liberal lens, which is very much something that the DA, the, an engine that drives the DA. The way in which it's managed to, to really transform, well, rear its head, but then keep on changing and transforming and morphing, has been something quite remarkable to watch, with the DA particularly. Um, and it's just, I mean, personally, okay, let me say, when it comes to voting and political parties, mm. I'm literally like a chicken at an intersection, not knowing which car is going to hit me first. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but at least when it's, yeah, I can, I can still maybe 
into, into a bit of a debate between the EFF and the ANC. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm definitely standing on the curb so that I don't get hit by the DA because <laughs> I know it will. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that, again, I mean, for me, the issue with, with both opposition parties, and I've said this before, is that yeah. they, ironically, are a product of the ANC. Mm. Because they were born out of the desire to, well, with the DA particularly, to spite the ANC, to disgrace the ANC. Um, and, of course, the, 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 the historical roots of the DA is something that I don't think many of us think about enough. The fact that that party is literally a, like a, an iteration of the National Party, you know, um, that just tried to rebrand. Um, but that's my issue with, with opposition in the country, is that I believe neither of the two options, the DA and the EFF, were truly formed out of a need to, um, to, to address what the people want. They were formed out of a need to show the ANC up and to... Uh, scare the ANC and to, you know, to unsettle the ANC. And from that perspective, it's, <laughs> it's, like, um, it's like patriarchy and straight men, right? The, the people that right. they want, the people that they want to impress the most are each other. Mm. And outside of that, mm. in this case, the people, nothing really matters. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, since we've started covering politics more up close, we go to Parliament, the IEC Results Centre, which is this weird, like, windowless casino where everyone walks around looking at the results. I don't think people understand how tight-knit the entire political elite is. Exactly. From DA to EFF, yeah. they, all it is is just the same people in different spaces at different times, mm. going from Parliament to elections to mm. TV studios. And... Many of them are best friends, yeah. like across the political spectrums, and we don't realize this. So we see the spectacle of Parliament, yes. and some of it is important. And you know, I, I for one, actually like the fact that we are starting to pick apart some of the fundamental assumptions of our democracy, sure. and I think that can be healthy. But at the same time, don't get it twisted. Like people aren't like as divided as they look in Parliament as a political establishment and a political elite. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a job. It's a job at the end of the day. It's a job to stand there and trash the president. Mm. It's a job to stand there and, and, and pull his, his statement apart. Mm. At some point, it's chaila time, and then you must go home, and you're not working anymore, mm. right? Mm. And then you're just a person. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think we, we really do overestimate just how much politics actually consumes the lives of politicians <laughs> and it's it really is a game mm. it is a game and it's a game that gets played with people's lives mm. and the one thing that each and every one of those political parties have in common is the lust for power and i'm not only talking about political power in mm. terms of you know um, leading metros and being president and i'm talking about social power mm. that mm. literally places you so far above everybody else that very, very, very few things matter to you 
and very few things affect you. Mm. And if we, look, if, we, if we look at that outside of the context of um, how that impacts on other people's lives, then any person would be like, hell yeah, that's what I want to do. I don't want to be affected by anything. I want to have a lot of money. I want to have, you know, I want to be able to snap my fingers and things happen for me. Mm. Of course, but when you look at the effect that that kind of privilege has on millions and millions of people outside of the realm of that privilege, then as a human being, how can you stand by and abide by that? How can you aspire to that? How do you look at... You don't even, you don't even have to like, see it in, in, in terms of representation because we also have this other issue of the West sort of always portraying Africans as hungry and, and mm. flies all over their face which is a very deliberate propaganda uh, tactic. But when you walk out of your door in just Johannesburg, you see it all around you. So how do you, how do you sit with that and go, but my aspiration to have all this power is still valid? Mm, mm, mm. You know? So I want to end on the EFF mm. and a particular critique that I think needs to continuously be, be leveled against the EFF, which is this question of gender and how it seems to be flailing somewhat in, in grappling with, with this question. And, you know, we've had this big debate in Parliament in the Cerner reply around, you know, we've got essentially a war on people gendered as women in our country, femicides and, and atrocious acts of violence being perpetrated every day, which, by the way, Sona, like two minutes, if that, and then we all move on to our, our new dawn fantasy. Yes. Um, so, but there was a debate that, <clears throat> you know, this crucial question only came up in the sense of serving mm. political agendas or scoring political points. And I wonder what your view on that is and, and the way it played out in Parliament. Mm. I... <laughs> So again, first of all, I don't, I don't believe, <laughs> I often have this, this debate with my partner, right? Mm. I don't believe that any politician has the interests of the people at heart. So, so I am not, for me, I, I, when, I, when I saw it happen, I wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a debate in my mind. I was like, well, of course you're going to do that, mm. you know? Um... These th again, it's politics is a game, and all these these um, social issues are, are are pawns in that game. So apparently, somebody said um, that that issue was raised by Julius Malema before. Um, but the but the question then is, is that all that happened? An issue was raised for what for what purpose? Mm. When you, when, you, when you sit in a position to, yeah, you might not be the president of the country, but you have enough power to, God, at least put some kind of pressure on somebody who can change something. You know, there's always something that can be done. There are people that are, that are, that are living on a hundred bucks a week that are still trying to do something. So the idea that the idea that one can sit 
with such um, pertinent information that could literally lead to a change in something. Um, but somehow you didn't have the tools or the means or the, you know, the, the way forward to, 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 to do something about it. For me, it's just absolutely ludicrous. So to respond to, to what you're saying, I am not in the least surprised. And at this point, I am skeptical to the extent that I expect such things mm. to come from people in political leadership. Because nothing but the objective of, first of all, disgracing the opponent, and then secondly, usurping power. Nothing but that objective is important. So, I'm not surprised. Well, Jamil F. Khan, um, I literally have like 50 other questions for you. So I'd like to make a proposal. Comment below if you agree that this becomes a daily SMWX. Yeah. Are you, are you, are you down? Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> no, I um, really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts, extended thoughts. It's always cool to see how someone who's prominent on Twitter extends their thoughts. Mm. Um, some, I dare say, are not able to. But <laughs> I think you've certainly proven today that you don't fall into that category. And thanks so much for taking the time to come on SMWX. Thank you. Last time we were together, you wore something that outdid me. Where would you say we stand today on that? You know, I felt really bad after that. <laughs> and so I thought to myself, let me take it just about a thousand notches down. <laughs> and now I think we're sort of on the same level. Uh, once again, you can decide where, where we stand. Comment below <laughs> if you think, um, yeah, I, I was doing some things that maybe Jamil can learn from in terms of... <laughs> um, yeah, like, I hope you enjoyed that. Make sure you comment below. Um, drop us a line on Twitter. Um, share this as far and wide as you can. Um, and let me know if we should have Jamil back every single day. Thanks for watching the content. Like, share, and subscribe on all platforms. smwx.co.za to join the WhatsApp channel. And let's build a new conversation for a new generation. Are you?